What a really great and uh, privilege it is and honor to be able to do this for any man who's being ordained into the ministry, but especially to be able to do this for my son. First time I've ever had to do this for uh, a son. And so it's the, it, I just consider it a tremendous opportunity. Now, I don't know why the rest of you are here today because I'm just going to be preaching to him. We thought exactly that what would we do is take him and put him on a chair up here on the platform, get the biggest spotlight we could and aim it on that, uh, on that chair. And uh, I asked Pastor Adam if he would also uh, put a little heat mechanism in the chair too to turn up the heat because he's taking on a huge responsibility here in terms of ministry. And we want to make sure that he does that the right way. We're so grateful for him. And I'm grateful to the elders here at Placerita and to Pastor Adam for the opportunity to be able to do this. And it is just a great honor for me to do that and a great delight as well. This is a solemn occasion, very solemn occasion. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones once made a statement, a man should only enter the Christian ministry if he cannot stay out of it. That's true. Why? Because the church today needs really tough and tender under-shepherds. If you can do anything else, James, that pleases God and be content doing it, do it. Charles Spurgeon made the statement about pastor. He says, a pastor must have the mind of a scholar, the heart of a child, and the skin of a rhinoceros. That's what a pastor's got to be. If you would, take your Bible and let's go over to 1 Timothy chapter 2, or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 2 is what I'm interested in, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and follow along as I read from the Legacy Standard Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. There are so many passages that we could go to to speak to men going into the ministry, but having a little bit of a sense of what the future holds for pastoral ministry... Uh, where our world is going, it's not getting better, it's getting worse. This particular passage is the thing that jumps right off the page at me for future men going into the ministry. Beginning in verse 14, 2 Timothy chapter 2 says this, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to dispute about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hear hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth, but avoid godless and empty, empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness and their word will spread like gangrene among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have gone astray from the truth saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to depart from wickedness. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of clay and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master having been prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lust 
and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the full knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. This is the last epistle the Apostle Paul wrote before his martyrdom around A.D. 67. He had recently been released from Roman imprisonment when he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. And this time, as he writes, he's back in prison. He was probably in prison because of Nero's intensified persecution of Christians that actually began three years before in A.D. 64. So previously, Paul had been confident of his release from prison. We can see this in Philippians 1, 19 and 25 and Philemon, verse 22. But this time, he has no such confidence. Early imprisonments, Paul was under house arrest, but this time he's in a cold, dark dungeon cell in chains, having been abandoned by all of his friends. In this final episode, Paul wants uh, to pass the baton of pastoral leadership over to Timothy once and for all as the pastor of the Ephesian church. And like his friends who had forsaken him, Paul is concerned that Timothy doesn't cave in to the fear of the persecution that's going on all around him. And therefore, he calls upon Timothy in regards to his timidity especially in carrying out his ministerial duties. He wants them to stir up the gifts that were given to him when they laid their hands on him in ordination for the ministry, when he was eventually, in a sense, anointed by the Holy Spirit to take on the awesome responsibility of ministry. Well, Timothy, in this sense, is the prototype of the post-apostolic pastor. In writing to Timothy, Paul really is addressing the first in a long line of post-apostolic shepherds or under-shepherds that would stretch over the centuries right down to today. In this respect, he's addressing every pastor in the last days or every man that takes on the incredibly heavy task of pastoral ministry. So if you're following along with the outline, take a look at Roman numeral number one. A godly pastor must be a tough troubleshooter. We pick up there in verse 14 where he talks about the fact, remind them of these things, solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to dispute about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of hearers. James, if you're going to be the right kind of a pastor, you cannot be timid, but you've got to be a tough troubleshooter. I had a conversation once uh, recently with um, some seminary couples because I have the opportunity to be able to teach at the 
master's seminary every semester, pastoral counseling and advanced counseling and marriage and family counseling. And so I was sitting in a fast food restaurant and one of the wives asked me if I thought her husband, who by temper was pretty laid back and a quiet guy, would ever be a good pastor. <laughs> and her husband didn't seem to mind the question. So I answered that temperament has nothing to do with pastoral qualifications. Temperament has nothing to do with it. That's a modern misnomer. Character. Character is what is important to God. The qualities of 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5 are godly character qualities that under shepherds of the flock must have. However, if temperament is really a disguise for timidity, then Scripture is concerned about it. You cannot function properly as a pastor and be timid. Timidity really is a form of fear of man. And pastors, even though their office seems to be a rather public office, must never, ever succumb to the fear of man. That must never be the case. In verse 14, Paul instructs this timid pastor, Timothy, to do two things, and then he proceeds to explain why he is to do these two things. First of all, how are you to be a tough troubleshooter? This has to do really with attentive shepherding. Well, everything important here is predicated upon maintaining a good grasp of the apostles' doctrine and constantly changing beliefs of Christians that will be under your care. So that's the reason why, number one, he says, remind them of these things. Remind them of these things. Sometimes pastoral troubleshooting involves reminding the saints of certain things they don't want to hear. <laughs> You're going to find that to be true. Things, however, that are important to their welfare. If you're afraid to confront error in their life, if you're afraid to do that, that's one of the most unkind things you could ever do. You've got to be able to do that. And the word remind is a present active imperative here. So the word remind means to constantly bring to their attention, to cause them to become aware of, to remind them sometimes of things they don't want to hear. Sometimes the Lord's sheep don't like reminders. Uh, they take it as an insult. You're treating us as children. Oh, I know that's already in the Bible. But pastors who fail to remind their sheep of substantive doctrinal positions are, that are really critical to their welfare are negligent shepherds. It's significant that this word is in the present tense because Timothy was supposed to keep on reminding them of these things repeatedly. What things is he to remind them of? We've had more time. We talk about those in chapters one and two, but essentially it's the apostolic doctrine that has been passed down from Christ. And who is the them? Who is the, who is the them? Remind them. Well, back up in verse 2, them is, is referring to faithful men. A good pastor is first and foremost really a man who trains other leaders. And verse 10 calls them those who are chosen. 
Remind them. Those who are chosen. So he's got to remind them of these, of these things. Number two, in order to, to solemnly charge them in the presence of God, not to wrangle about words. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to charge them? It's a very powerful work. word. It's the word diamaturamai. So the central core of the word means to witness. Um, maturamai, that's the idea. But it has the prefix D on it, which really intensifies the word. So it means to bear solemn witness, to bear witness to them of that which is extremely important, not something that's a, a light matter, but it's something to be taken seriously of great significance. And the idea of the seriousness of what to charge them about is increased by the phrase in them in the presence of God. You find that same phrase later on in chapter 4, verse 1. So this is not used lightly. It's not wanting to take the name of God in vain. On the contrary, it's something that is incredibly solemn. And notice that he was to solemnly charge them not to wrangle about words. Why? Because sheep love to get into word battles. They love this. Saints will get into word battles, not just word games. They will get into disputes about words and about things. They will argue about trivial things. They will have word fights or word wars. We can see this back in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 4, 2 Timothy 2, 23. And it's important to note that two men claim to be Christians. You can see this in verse 17, Hymenaeus and Philetus. One of these men had already been mentioned in 1 Timothy 1.20. So when you go back into the context of 1 Timothy 1, you find these men claiming to teach the word of God among the saints. These were considered to be leaders in the church. But what they were really doing was adding to Scripture, indicating that the Scriptures were teaching things that they were not really actually teaching. Now, when most pastors are worried about what they're going to preach on Sunday, they hardly ever consider who and what their sheep are really listening to. As a pastor teacher, you must watch for people in your own ministry who will add to the text things that are not there. Then they will raise their conclusions about the text or their application to the text to uncompromising absolutist positions, and then they will want people to hold on to the same, what their view is, as the same authority as that of inspired Scripture, and as a result of that, that's going to cause problems. We see this happening all over conservative Christianity today. Styles of worship or music preferences, eschatology, child-rearing techniques, hard and fast dating, courting, or betrothal principles, redefining marriage, LGBTQIA and all, and artificial intelligence type positions, personality and temperament qualifications, the Enneagram personality tests, assigning numerical value to the letters of the Bible and then finding hidden meanings in the Bible and on and on and on. As time goes by, challenges are going to change, but you've got to be rock solid theologically to meet those challenges through your lifetime of ministry in whatever years God gives you. 
I'm not saying that teaching and applying the text is wrong. I'm saying that teaching fanciful ideas that the text does not teach is wrong. So if you're going to be a tender and yet tough under-shepherd, you must be a theological troubleshooter. You've got to do that. There's a second thing here that says, why should you be a tough troubleshooter? Look at verse 14. It says in verse 14, notice that why Paul wants Timothy to remind them of these things and why he wants Timothy to solemnly charge them not to wrangle about words. Because number one, because having word fights, wrangling about words is useless. It's no profit, of no service. Same form of this word is used in Philemon where Paul says of Onesimus, he was formerly useless, that is of no value, so don't get involved in word wars, word fights over issues that are clearly not taught in Scripture because they don't do anything constructive. Secondly, not only are these wranglings about words useless, they are worse than that. They are destructive. The Greek word here is catastrophe. It's where we get our word literally catastrophe in English from. It leads to ruin. It will be utterly destructive in a big way. It's the same word that's used in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6 to describe what happened to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was an utter catastrophe. God destroyed them and reduced them to ash heaps. Well, what Paul says happens when people do not rightly use or understand the scriptures. Terrible consequences will be unavoidable in their lives. If you are not attentive to these self-destructive tendencies in your flock, they will be like sheep easily led astray from the truth of scripture. Sheep are easily led astray. That's one of the most common characteristics of sheep. They have so many voices coming at them through all kinds of forms of media, social media, larger media forms, television, movies, informing their worldview. And it's not a Christian worldview. You got to be the one to bring them back to the doctrine of Scripture. You've got to be the one to do that. If you're not attentive to these self-destructive tendencies in your sheep, then there's a disaster ahead. Pastoral ministry is much more than sermon prep. You have to know your sheep, what they are thinking, what they are believing, what they are teaching in order to be a good under-shepherd. And by the way, one of the best ways to do this is by individually counseling them. That's when you really get into their mind. You can't get into their mind from the pulpit but you can get into their mind individually. Now, at this particular point, I want to skip verse 15. I'm going to come back to verse 15 because that's an important verse. But not only must you be a tough trouble, <clears throat> excuse me, a tough, a tough troubleshooter, but secondly, a godly pastor must be a tender truth screener. Verses 16 through 26. There's several things that I want you to see here. First of all, you've got to be able to separate your sheep from contamination in verses 16 through 19. 
You must warn your flock to avoid teachers who read meaning into the text that is not there. That's in verse 16. First, Paul directly commands Timothy to avoid such speculations because it will be easy for you to get caught up in such word wars. And the original term means to turn yourself around for the purpose of avoiding something, stay away from it, refuse to even listen. And in some contexts, this word means to actually take up opposition towards. And I believe by the principle of necessary extension, Timothy is to instruct his flock to do the same. Avoid such teachers don't get caught in discussing or listening to teachers who go on with fanciful diversions away from the text. And there are five reasons to separate and avoid such teachers. Number one, because it is worldly and empty chatter. It is worldly and empty chatter. There it is, the first part of verse 16. In the ancient world, it was believed that useless talking was the cause of sickness of the soul. Useless talking was the cause of sickness of the soul. We have a lot of useless talking. Most of it goes on in text messages. It's a cause of sickness of the soul, not the body. And it demonstrated itself either in the quality or the quantity of speech. You've got to keep them away because it's worldly and empty chatter. Secondly, because it promotes personal ungodliness. It promotes personal ungodliness. It will rob you of spiritual vitality and will undermine your mental focus on godliness. Why? Because the goal of your Bible study and exegesis uh, is proving your point, demonstrating your correctness, finding minute exceptions to further validate your position. And you cease to be a pastor and you become a prideful debater. Be careful of anything in your ministry that will take you or your flock away from focus upon godliness. The renowned and very famous Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, who believed in faithful ministry of the word of God, said this, it is an obvious error for all those to see in those ministers of the church who make such a wide gulf between their preaching and their living. They will study hard, preach exactly, and yet study little or not at all to live exactly. All the week long is little enough study on how to speak for two hours, and yet, and by the way, sermons in those days were two hours long. Two hours, and yet one hour seems too much time to study how to live all week. They are loath to misplace a word in their sermons, yet they think nothing of misplacing affections, words, and actions during their lives. Oh, how curiously I have heard some men preach, and how carelessly I have seen them live. End of quote. B.B. Warfield makes a statement. He says, a minister must be learned on pain of being utterly incompetent for his work, but before and above being learned, a minister must be godly. Nothing could be more fatal, however, than to set these two things over against one another. 
Recruiting officers do not dispute it is better for soldiers to have a right leg or a left leg. Soldiers should have both legs, end of quote. And so Warfield is emphasizing the fact that you've got to be learned on the one hand, but you've got to be godly on the other hand. You can't take either one of those away. What the church does not need is another polished preacher anxious to prove himself in the pulpit. It doesn't need another godly preacher anxious to live, or what it does need is another godly preacher that anxious to live and teach holiness. God cannot use you as a pastor if your heart is filled with envy, pride that comes from useless arguments or speculative theology. It robs you of godliness. J. Sidlow Baxter says, no man who is full of himself can ever truly preach Christ who emptied himself. Heed the memorable words written by Robert Murray McJane to the Reverend Dan Edwards on the 2nd of October, 1840, after his ordination as a missionary to the Jews. He said to him, I trust that you will have a pleasant and profitable time in Germany. I know you will apply hard to German, but do not forget the culture of the inner man, I mean the heart. How diligently the cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp, every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument, and I trust a chosen and vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Christ. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. Your flock will want to be holy when they see you wanting to be holy. There's a third thing here in verse 17, because it will spread like gangrene. The medical metaphor is intentional. The idea Paul expresses here is not a mild rash or minor inconvenience, but it's something that will kill you and kill your flock. It is a disease by which any part of the body suffering from inflammation becomes so corrupted that unless a remedy is seasonably applied, the evil continually spreads attacks other parts of the body, and at last eats away the bones. The metaphor illustrates the insidiousness of good-sounding false doctrine in the church. The insidiousness of good-sounding false doctrine. Paul wants Timothy to screen what was being taught in the church. There's a fourth thing here. Because they have gone astray as far as the truth. Verse 18. Now Paul gets down to specifics. What have they gone astray on? The answer to that is that they were teaching that the resurrection has already taken place. Now, how did they do that? Well, from the text, we can get a good idea that they were spiritualizing the Bible. Everything the Bible said about future bodily resurrection of God's people was merely a spiritual resurrection. This is probably refuting an early form of docetic Gnosticism. Just as Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3 and verse 7, the future resurrection means uh, to be raised uh, uh, spiritually. So they were extending that to everything in life. They allegorize 
or spiritualize the future bodily resurrection of the saints. Where does they get that from? Because Gnosticism basically said that everything that was physical was evil. Everything that was spiritual was good. So there was a striving to, in a sense, get away from the physical and become spiritual. Docetic Gnosticism basically taught that Jesus could not have come at all in human flesh because to have come in human flesh would be, be equal to coming in evil form, in physical form. So Jesus really didn't come in human flesh. Jesus only appeared to seem, that's what the word docetist means, to seem to come in human flesh. And so if he didn't come in human flesh, then guess what? He didn't live a human life. If he didn't come in human flesh, then he didn't die a human death. If he didn't die a human death, then he didn't, he was never raised bodily, so there is no bodily future resurrection. It undermined everything about the gospel. False teaching will do those kind of things to your flock. And people there in the church, in their church, they were buying it up. It was part of their media. They were buying it up. It was just destructive. Some forms of hyper-predator Preterism today advocates that kind of position. They were causing confusion and dissension among the church with those kind of twisted word wars. So Paul instructs Timothy to avoid such people, shun them, and teach your flock to do the same thing. Number five, because they will upset the faith of some. Because they will upset the faith of some. To upset literally means to turn over, invert the faith. It's the opposite of what it should be. It becomes a useless faith. So Paul, time and time again, warns that well-meaning teachers in the church will come and overturn the faith of many. Imagine believing for most of your Christian life that someday you and your family and friends who are believers will be resurrected bodily and then live together serving the Lord on the new heavens and new earth. And then suddenly you find people at the church teaching that there is really no future bodily resurrection. These teachers were not denying life in heaven. They were denying a future bodily life. As a pastor, you have to watch out for those kind of teachers. Guard your flock. Be on patrol for them. Weak shepherds, passive pastors will allow sheep to be devoured by these false views, and you must not. I cannot tell you how rare it is to find a pastor who takes this issue seriously. This is why the church is so weak of a condition today. We're 20 miles wide and a half inch deep. So you have to separate from the contamination. You have to separate yourself and your flock from the contamination. Then B, in our outline here, sanitizing the church, verses 20 and 21. Continuing with a similar metaphor of false teaching being like gangrene, it is somewhat a mixed metaphor here, but nevertheless significant. It's like every household has common tableware and special tableware for special occasions. So the Lord's household or the church has within it common tableware, which is unfaithful members, and special tableware, which is faithful members. And your church will be the same way. The difference is that the special tableware used for special occasions is very discerning concerning theological contamination. The common tableware, the wooden clay, is undiscerning. You don't throw away fine china. You do paper plates, right? You keep the fine china. You make sure that's clean. 
When paper plates get dirty, you throw it away. There's common tableware that is thrown away because they're useless to the church. They come to church, they hear things, they walk away and immediately forget it. You're doing your best when your flock is full of special tableware by avoiding being soiled by all the false teachers that are demanding their attention. So in this way, your church will be full of the Lord's vessels used, number one, for honorable purposes, honorable to God and honorable in relationship to others. Number two, for sanctification purposes, he says, that is seeking to be holy or seeking to be sinless. Number three, for youthful purposes for the master, not worthless ones or useless ones. That, that's good tableware. Number four, prepared for every good work that is ready to advance the kingdom of Christ and the gospel upon good theology. Far too many churches are filled with contaminated vessels that dishonor the Lord daily. They are a part of the world, not separated from the world. They're unsanctified, useless for the master, unprepared to do any good work. So Paul was deeply concerned that Timothy kept himself and the flock there at Ephesus in useful condition for honorable work of the Lord. And then let's look at verses 22 through 26, sanctified in conduct. Now in verses 22 through and 23, when Paul's referring to youthful lusts, he's not referring to sexual passions. There's no sex in any of 2 Timothy 2. That's not what he's talking, youthful passions. Look at verse 22 when it says, now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Many, many years ago before I went to seminary, James, I remember talking to a youth group and I was not really well skilled in scripture. And I found this first and I said, oh my goodness, this is so perfect to talk about sexual things. And I even themed it on the on the fact that you have to run away from sexual temptation double time. Actually, actually this is 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, double time away from sexual things. Little did I really not carefully study the text. It has nothing to do with sexual things at all. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking to a pastor in this particular case who has a tendency, and young pastors do this, to want to argue their point. A pastor who has a propensity to be passionate, arguing and quarreling with those who disagree with them. You must never give in to that kind of human impulse. Instead, you must pursue righteousness, faith, and peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Don't argue with false teachers. Focus on your ministry on the pure of heart. False teachers are part of the tableware that is contaminated. And then Paul gives five characteristics of what your pastoral disposition should be as an under-shepherd who views himself as a slave of Christ. Number one, he says, you must not be quarrelsome. It's interesting that that's at the top of the list, isn't it? Because young guys love that. They love to get into arguments, debates. You must not be quarrelsome. Doesn't make for a good pastor. Number two, you must be kind to all. Kind to all. That means to the tableware that's the common. 
as well as the fine china. You have to be kind to all. That's your job as a pastor. Number three, you must be able to teach. That's one of the special giftedness of a pastor teacher. You've got to be a good teacher. And I think God has gifted you in that way. Number four, you must be patient when wronged. Boy, there's a toughie, right? Especially when you know you've been wronged or the word of God has been wrong or somehow Jesus Christ has been bespurched by a member of your church. You get very impatient with them. Number five, you must use gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. And you notice what he says here. In verse 25, he says, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. Repentance is not an act of the human will. Repentance is a gift that God grants them. We can't force repentance on anybody. Repentance is not an act of the human will. It's not something you conjure up. Okay, I'm repentant now. No, 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 it's a gift. For those who are not repentant, they need to cry out to God that God will grant them the gift of repentance. So you must use gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Gentleness to those in opposition is very powerful and God may use it to grant them repentance. Good under shepherds know how to point out error, but great under shepherds make it easy for their opposition to come to repentance through their gentleness. Difference between good and great. They do not allow their pushy and prideful theological perspective to upstage the full knowledge of the truth. They will always be people who disagree with you. That's always going to be the case in ministry. But when you respond to them in gentle and caring ways, it makes it easy for them to change their minds. That's when Christ is truly honored. This is what Colossians 2 says. Let your, your speech always be, be with grace seasoned as it were with salt. Now, what does grace and salt have to do with one another? In ancient times, salt was a preservative, but it also created thirst. In other words, somebody's opposed to what you're saying, but you're so gracious and you respond to them, they disagree with you. But when you're gracious, that, in a sense, creates thirst in them to hear more. All right? They want to hear more. They don't agree with you, but they want to hear more. You said it so graciously. They want to do that. That your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt. That's why you go to a Dodgers game. Almost everything they serve there at Dodgers games has got lots of salt in it. Why do they do that? Because they know they can sell more drinks, right? Well, your speech has got to be that way. So you've got to be a tough troubleshooter. You've got to be a tender truth screener. And our third challenge to use in back in verse 15. Let me close off with this. As a godly pastor, you must be a theological truth speaker. Whether you are privately counseling or publicly preaching the word of God, the admonition of verse 15 is profound and dramatic. Notice what verse 15 says. Now, this is your imperative. He says, be diligent. This word has such a rich meaning that it almost is misleading to translate it with only two English words. But the idea is it means to make ha haste. That, that word is 
frequently use New Testament that way, which conveys the idea of urgency and importance. You have to be diligent. You've got to make haste to do this. There are th some things you can put off as a pastor, but this is not one of them. You cannot neglect or procrastinate about this area of your ministry. It's going to be a critical area. It, it carries the idea of enthusiasm and eagerness as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 17, we were all the more eager with great desire to see you, Paul says. Galatians 2.10, where Paul says the leaders of the church at Jerusalem approved of this ministry and told him to remember the poor who he says he was eager to do. So this word, be diligent, means eager. It's not something that is done with a spirit of reluctance or drudgery or necessity. This must be done, and it must be done without an ounce of withholding. You've got to be eager to do it. And then this word also means, has the idea of diligence. To be diligent, making as 2 Peter 1.10, making your election and calling sure, 2, Timothy, or 2 Peter 3.14, be diligent to be found in him in peace, blameless, which means to be careful, cautious. It means to be earnest, thorough, energetic, painstaking in your effort and your application. What we're saying here is merely exegeting the Bible is easy. Exegeting saints is difficult. That's tough. This is the kind of statement that one might make to a gladiator when going into an arena to face the lions or a soldier going to battle. Be diligent. And the last thing this means, it basically means to do your utmost. King James translates it study. New American Standard says be diligent. The Legacy Standard Bible says be diligent. The NIV says do your best in, in this word. He's saying... What I'm telling you to do ought to be given your best effort. So I think the best translation of the word is do your utmost. Do your utmost. Because it conveys this idea of doing everything that you can do with nothing left off. Once you've done your utmost, there's nothing left to be done. It's like going to the uttermost parts of the earth as far as you can go. Doing your utmost means utilizing your abilities, your efforts, your powers, your resources, to the highest and greatest degree. So Paul is saying that whatever he's commanding Timothy and you as a pastor to do in this reminder here in verse 18, it's urgent, get right at it, to be done with enthusiasm, it should be done with diligence, it should convey your best effort, you should give your utmost to it. Now, be here in your outline. What is the issue to which you should devote yourself utmost to? Do your utmost to present yourself approved unto God. The word approved here was used for testing metals and jewels to see if they were genuine. Uh, they were what the owners claimed to be. In buying my wife's engagement ring 43 years ago, 44 years ago now, in buying that engagement ring, um, all diamonds looked the same to me. They, they did, they did, until we had an expert that taught me how to see flaws in diamonds. So for you as a pastor, the crucible, in the crucible of the local church, um, you will be put to test and it will tax your workmanship as an under-shepherd and as a Bible student. Are you real or are you fake? 
And many men have failed underneath that pressure. Then he says, do your utmost to present yourself approved to God. To God. Paul said of the teachers that they have strayed from the truth. They wanted to be recognized as teachers. Later in 2 Timothy 4, 3, Paul refers to these teachers who teach things that people like to hear. They say things that are popular. They are seeker-sensitive, but they have turned aside to myths. They are not people who blatantly denied the truth of the word of God. Instead, they added to God's word and used it as a jumping off point to communicate whatever their fanciful ideas were. The goal of ministry is not so that men will say amen to your teaching or tell you how wonderful you are as a pastor or how great your ministry was. When I was young, I thought that was the case. I thought that was the goal of ministry. When somebody went out and after a, a message that I taught and said, oh, I've never seen anything like that in my ministry at all or in my life at all. I've never seen that truth uh, or in Scripture, I should say. I've never seen that truth in Scripture at all. You help me to see something I've never seen today. That's really not a great compliment. That's okay. But when people do come to you and they say to you, you know, it's like, James, you've had a camera in our house all week. And now I see how the word of God relates to everything that I'm facing. Now that's something. So your goal is not to have people say amen to your teaching or tell others how wonderful you are or to write letters of appreciation or notes. No, your goal is to please God. Richard Baxter put it this way. To be a pastor, a man must set his heart on the life to come and regard the matters of eternal life above all the affairs of this present life, above the trifles of this world, he must appreciate in some measure the inestimable riches of glory. That's where you have your eyes set. What is it that pleases God here in verse 15? A hard-working under-shepherd. The great British preacher G. Campbell Morgan asked by younger pastors the secret of his success. Morgan said, I always say to them the same thing, work, hard work, and again, work. There we go. And Morgan lived up to his advice. He would be in his study every morning at six o'clock, finding rich treasures out of the Bible to pass on to God's people. Now, note that Paul wants Timothy to be a particular kind of workman, a workman who needs not be ashamed. The Greek term here that's used for embarrassment or humiliation has a prefix on it. It's epi, and it intensifies the word to mean abundantly ashamed, super abundant or overflowing with embarrassment. And this is what's going to happen. Lazy, negligent, unfaithful, irresponsible under-shepherds must never accept the role of being a true pastor. They will be an embarrassment. And then furthermore, Paul goes on and says, and tells us under shepherds how to present ourselves approved unto God. If you want to present yourself unto God as a workman who must rightly handle the word of truth. The... Legacy Standard Bible says accurately handling the word of truth is the idea. Whether you're in public ministry or private ministry, in preaching or counseling, you've got to handle it well. Again, going back to Richard Baxter. I love to read Richard Baxter. You can tell this. 
I know that preaching the gospel publicly is the best means, he says, in terms of an efficient use of time and energy because we speak to so many at once, but it is usually far more effective, Baxter says, to speak it privately to a particular person. End of quote. Handling accurately literally means to cut it straight. Like a carpenter who's setting the boards fit together, otherwise the house is going to be misshapen. And you must note that the immediate context contains the idea to cut it straight means much more than accurate interpretation. It means to cut it straight so that it's useful in helping your flock identify error and avoid that error in their life. Listen to the wisdom of an experienced pastor, Martin Luther. He says, let ministers daily pursue their studies with diligence and constantly busy themselves with them Moreover, let them with care and diligence beware of the infectious poison of the imagined security and conceited overestimation. Rather, let them steadily keep on reading, teaching, studying, pondering, and meditating. My concern should be that others receive from me what God has taught me in Scripture and that I strive to present this in the most attractive form to teach the ignorant, to admonish and encourage those who have knowledge, to comfort troubled consciences, to awaken and strengthen negligent and sleepy hearts as Paul did, and as he commanded his pupils Timothy and Titus to do, this should be my concern, how others get the truth from me. Studying is my work, the work that God wants me to do, and if it pleases him, he will bless it. So it's going to be your job. To handle the word of truth accurately, it's not your job to add to it or say more than the word has or to subtract from the word. You must be careful not to falsify or mutilate or improve the word of God. It is your job to understand it, interpret it, exposit it accurately in such a way that it changes the lives of your flock and pleases God. And to do that, you must cut it straight. There is a pastor himself he cherished who loved his position and not his parish. So the more he preached, the less he reached. And this is why his parish perished. John Calvin, in closing, says this, those whom the Lord has destined for this great office, he previously provides with the armor, which is the requisite for the discharge of it that they may not come empty and unprepared. God has done that in your life, has prepared you, trained you, given you great training in the past. Now the question is, how well you use that to his honor and glory, that becomes the key. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the admonition that the word of God gives us in the world in which we live today, it is indeed a bright shining light in the midst of lots of darkness. I am so grateful for all that you have instilled within James's life. Um, in his past, through his education, through his experiences in ministry here at Placerita, and then the opportunity of future full-time ministry at the church there in Glendale, Father, we're grateful for all of this, 
But Father, we would pray that you would command and control his heart and constantly point it to the gospel and the Savior, constantly point it to eternal values, not get stuck on earthly values. And may he be the man of God that he needs to be in order to be a tough and yet very tender under-shepherd of your flock. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.